0: All right, all right. Let's uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. You all sound so cheerful. I I, I hate to interrupt. I, uh, it makes me feel bad. But you can still be cheerful while you listen, right? I think that I think it works out. Let's say let's begin with a word of prayer. Almighty and everlasting God, give us an increase of faith, hope, and charity, and that we may obtain what you have promised, make us love what you have commanded through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, so, frankly, we're fighting a losing battle today because this, this is the last Sunday on First and Second Kings, and we, as you note in your handout there, are beginning at chapter 11, and the book ends in chapter 25. So, either a miracle will occur, or you're going to have to do some reading on your own, which is all right. I don't mind that so much. Um, so let's take a look. Let's just, let's just catch put our, put our feet beneath us for a second here and see where we've been. And I think as we conclude this, what I want you to keep in mind um, is, is the overall story that we've heard so far. Uh, David, is this going to fit if I... Sorry. Oh, man. This is terrible. <laughs> Thank you, David. All right, now the markers aren't going to work, so this is all that work effort for. Okay, so if you remember way back at the very beginning, we we described the books of First and Second Kings as the death and resurrection. Nope, I always put the double letter in the wrong place. Right, two s's or two r's? Okay. Of do you remember the death and resurrection of what? Do you remember? Of the Davidic kingdom. Now, this is really important because uh, promises are given to David, both um, through his through his forefather Judah, right, and through his through through his the patriarchs that one day a seed would come who would save all people, but also specifically promises are given to David that there would always remain one of his sons on the throne. Well, we think be—we think things are looking pretty good with Solomon, but then um, the wisdom of Solomon is put to death. So we can parse this out in, in three different ways. There's, we see how wisdom, human wisdom, human wisdom has its end when Solomon loves something other, than, something other than God, right? So wisdom dies. Um, we're going to hear in this, these last couple chapters of 2 Kings how the temple is destroyed. And even the Torah. Do you know what the Torah is? This is, this is God's law. Which, uh, particularly, we're going to see how it applies in the case of the Passover, okay? God's law for his people, what he has, uh, it, how, how he has organized their lives around receiving his gifts. Even that, even the, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, even the Torah uh, can't be kept perfectly, right? So, they, the, their, their uh, maintenance of the Torah fails, Okay? Um, now what 's brilliant about, about the books of First and Second Kings as they connect to the New Testament is that we see these three things, these three things that the Davidic kingdom embodies in these, first two, in these two books. It embodies these three things. We see them all put to death, right and we 're hoping for a resurrection. Um, what we see then in the New Testament is that all three of these things are brought together in whom? Jesus, right? Jesus, the wisdom of God. Jesus, the, tap, the temple, the place where God's, God dwells with his people. Jesus, the fulfillment of the law, the perfect fulfillment of the law. Now, um, you might think, well, that's great. We've got, we've got all of these things that, that, that the people tried to do and they failed at. And here they are, perfected in Jesus. But, what, but the story doesn't end with Jesus coming, right? The story ends with these things... The Davidic kingdom, even in Jesus, being put to death, right? It's not until that, that final nail is put um, into, into these attempts at, 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 at being righteous, at being holy, apart from God's grace, and, until Jesus is put to death, um, that we finally see the death of the Davidic kingdom, and then we get to enjoy its resurrection, okay? And it's a new kingdom. It's a new kingdom... Uh, Jesus comes in, in the gospel saying the kingdom of God is at hand, and it's it's in Himself. It's wherever Jesus is, there the kingdom is. Okay, does that make sense? Is that? I want you to keep that in mind as you as you as you review First and Second Kings. This is the story we're looking at, and this is just sort of a snapshot of of uh, this part of Israel's history, which finally which finally culminates in the New Testament when Jesus comes. Any questions? Okay, so there's another, there's another um, big picture that I want you to look at when you read First and Second Kings. And that is, that is a formal picture. It's a picture that has to do with the structure. So you remember we started with David and Solomon. And then we had, things went downhill after David's son Rehoboam irritated the other 10 tribes of Israel. The kingdom split. You see that on your chart right there. Let's see, that's on page one. Um, The kingdom split at the bottom of the left column. Kingdom divided because Rehoboam and Jeroboam don't get along. Jeroboam takes the ten tribes. Rehoboam keeps Judah and and the the priesthood. Um, And then what happens, what follows is this litany, this sort of tireless um, litany, monotonous litany of kings who are terrible, right? You see the list go on and on and on, all those blue dots, right? They did evil in the sight of the Lord, evil in the sight of the Lord, evil in the sight of the Lord. And this list, we can, see, we can see sort of its end. I don't know why I'm writing this sideways, just to make it harder to read. They see its end um, in Ahab. Remember who comes when Ahab is on the throne? Who shows up in the middle of 1 and 2 Kings? Elijah and Elisha. Now, um, this happens frequently in Old Testament literature, that what's at the center is what's most important, Okay. Um, and at the center of First and 2 Kings, we have um, Elijah, who is proclaiming judgment against, uh, against the, the, the evil kings, um, very much fulfilling the role of John the Baptist. But then we have Elisha. God saves. And around him, he gathers a, a group of faithful people. And um, it's remarkable that, that it seems to be that whatever Elisha touches... You know, whoever, whoever comes into contact with Elisha, whoever seeks him out, receives what they ask for, right? He is, he is sort of the embodiment of God's saving presence among the people of Israel. Well, uh, it, it, it's, it's short-lived, right? It, it, uh, and We're going to hear about the end of it in just a moment. It's short-lived because Elisha, as great as he was and as much as God was with him, Elisha is a mortal human being, right, whose end um, came, who died, right? Then you get, it's followed by another litany of of kings. Um, But at the end of the story, you have some interesting, uh, very faithful kings. Hezekiah, we're going to hear about him, and Josiah. Okay, so we've got mostly bad kings. And mostly bad kings. Ahab is really bad. And then at the end here we have Manasseh, who is really bad. In fact, Manasseh is the reason why Judah is finally exiled. Manasseh is a king of Judah, and he's the reason why judgment comes because of how wicked he was. Okay, so you can see this—you see this form. This is this is what First and Second Kings looks like. Um, and so when you're reading it. Keep this in mind. This is is not incidental. This is to to draw your attention to God's saving work through a man, through a poor, lowly man, God's saving work uh, for anyone who calls on his name, and and also the fact that although um, things seem to be really bad, God sends his salvation, and although things seem to be really good, there are consequences for disobeying God's, disobeying God's word. And that, in the case of Israel and Judah, means exile. Okay? All right. Let's, let's dive in. Whew. Okay. So we're going we're to skip over a bunch of things. But I'll take you through the things I have highlighted just so you see, just so you see what's going on. Okay? We landed last time. We talked just a little bit about, about Athaliah, who was um, the mother of... A king who died, uh, uh, and a, Judah, a a Judah, a Jewish king who died, and she, remember what she did is she killed everybody, except for one son who was tucked away safely by by Athaliah's sister. Now it, it, it couldn't, it couldn't, uh, it wasn't sustainable because Athaliah was the daughter of Omri; she wasn't, she wasn't um, uh, a, a son of of David. Okay, and so notice what happens in chapter eleven. Um, after Joash, Athaliah's son, who's been saved, is made king, look, look what happens. Jehoiada, first underlined section here, made a covenant. Jehoiada is a priest between the Lord and the king and the people. So he's renewing this covenant because, because this, uh, this sort of um, perversion has come into the, into the lineage. Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people and also between the king and the people. And it's an amazing thing when you think about it how frequently, how often, and how easily God. Uh, renews his covenant at every opportunity. He says, "This is we're gonna we're gonna get this right. Let me let's renew this covenant on account of your father David. I'm gonna I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bring judgment on you. Okay. Okay. Now um, you see that we have a fellow who rebuilds the temple, works to rebuild the temple. Turn the page, page four. We're gonna skip over that. This is more interesting." chapter 13 the death of elisha and this is just to, to nail down the point of how important the character of elisha is in the story of in the story of first and second kings now when elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die joash the king of israel went down to him and wept before him crying my father my father the chariots of israel and its horsemen who, who, you remember who else had that for, who else was described that way elijah elisha said the very same thing about elijah when he was taken to heaven so Verse 20, Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year, and as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Um, Elisha, God saves, um, even, even in this this incredible, miraculous way, right? Just I mean, and it's reminiscent to me of, the woman who comes and touches the, 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 the hem of Jesus' garment, and we heard a couple weeks ago, last week, as many as, as, many as um, asked him if they could touch the, the corner of his garment and did, they were, they were made well, okay? But listen to what happens next. Now, Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. So we're starting to see foreign nations really causing trouble for Israel, and this is foreshadowing of what's, what's going to come. But the Lord was gracious to them, again, gracious and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. This is is significant because the, the people of Israel don't have a claim to the promises given to David. right? Judah has that claim. God had promised to Judah that a son of David would be on, on the throne forever. What about the rest of the, the ten tribes of Israel who've gone away? Well, look, there's still a promise. There's still a covenant, something that holds true for them. And that is the covenant that was given to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because of that, God never abandons Israel. As perverse as they were, as as much as they turned away from God and worshipped other gods and rejected God, um, he had a covenant with, their, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that that... Um, was the basis for his steadfast love, for his for his enduring love. Okay. Everybody good? Yes, please. Um, I think you're right. I think you're right. Let's see. They're all dark blue. Yep, they're all dark blue. Yep. Nobody's good. Although, although, what you what's interesting, is that doesn't mean so that doesn't mean that they were all. Um, so Jehu, for instance, is an Israelite king, right? And he carried out the prophecy that was given to uh, Elijah that that you know whoever whoever Elisha doesn't kill Jehu will kill, and whoever Jehu doesn't kill, Hazael will kill, right? So Jehu, um, for whatever reason, goes and does all of this work that God has given him to do, but then just like. Just like his predecessors and his, those who come after him, successors, um, he, he goes astray. But it's a good, it's a good point. Um, whereas on, on the side of Judah, we have this reprieve every so often. We have this reprieve where there's a good king. Okay? And, th- and those those punctuations on the side of Judah are really important. For it, it, it's, it's really important because on the one hand, it makes us hopeful. We say, oh, isn't it so great that um, they restored... They, they tore down the high places. They restored worship in the temple. They tried to rebuild the temple. Um, they prayed to God. They turned to him when they were afflicted by their enemies. We say, isn't that so great? But at the same time, um, God's judgment comes on them, right? It's not about, that's not the resurrection that we're waiting for. That's not the resurrection of the, king, that, the, the, of the Davidic kingdom that we're waiting for. It's a reprieve. It's God's compassion towards his people, giving them, giving them a break, from from all of this wickedness, okay, and also and also pointing ahead to what, what's going to come um, in the New Testament, okay. Great, let's keep rolling. Chapter fifteen, no, chapter fourteen. I didn't include because it is this section here, this litany uh, where you can't really you, you you don't know what's happening. They're all bad, all right. You could summarize it. It's you know those you know those uh, classic novels in a sentence. That's what it is. They were all they, they all stink. It was bad. Um, so chapter 15, we, um, we start to see again these foreign nations imposing on Israel. And uh, there's an important name here. This, these, these names become very interesting in terms of archaeology and, and the history of the ancient Near East because we, see, we can see artifacts that, that reveal um, these nations' relationship with Israel. The Moabites, in fact, at the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago, there's a, there's a copy of the Moabite stone where... One of the battles that took place is recorded from the, the perspective of the king of Moab. Uh, very, very interesting. Um, if you ever get a chance to take a look at it or look it up online, it's, uh, it's interesting. Same thing with, um, at, and at the Oriental Institute, they have they have the gates that the people of Israel would have seen, would have walked through when they, when they were exiled into Babylon. It's really, I mean, remarkable stuff. Go take a look. Um, maybe we can take a field trip. That'd be fun. In the days of, okay, so verse 29 of chapter 15. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ijan and so forth, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. So here, the people of Israel are beginning to be exiled, right? They're being taken captive to Assyria. Uh, They're being taken away from the land that God had given to them. And then you hear that name Uzziah, um, and maybe that rings a bell we hear about him in, the prophecies of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, we hear um, how uh, Isaiah's, Isaiah's career as a prophet began in the sixth year. I think it's the sixth year of, the, of King Uzziah, right? So here, now we're entering into the territory of Isaiah the prophet. Um, okay. The Assyrians are coming. Chapter 16, turn the page. Ahaz is a really bad king. He even burned, top top of page 5, he even burned his son as an offering, and he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on hills and under every green tree. Um, Things are really looking grim. Then King Ahaz, verse verse 10, went to Damascus. Listen to this. This is um, liturgical innovation at its worst. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, a king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest... A model of the altar. And in its pattern, exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar. And then verse 12, And when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar, and the king drew near to the altar, and went up on it, and burned his burnt offering, and his grain offering, and poured his drink offering, and threw his blood of the peace offering on the altar. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the altar. Right? So... um, that not only has the, the house of the Lord, the temple, been sort of pillaged of its finery, its beauty, right? The, the ornateness that's been given to it. Even the altar, the place where God promises to come and receive acceptable sacrifices, um, that's set aside, right? It's pushed aside and, and in its place is put an altar that looks an awful lot like the altar that uh, is in Damascus that's used to sacrifice to, to other gods, Okay. All uh, right. Everybody still good? We're flying. This is great. Chap- uh, page 6. King Ahaz takes things out of the temple. The temple is, is on its way to destruction. Okay? He removed the basin. He took down the sea. Now, um, here he's starting to remove these, these things that are fundamental to the worship of the, of the temple. So you can still burn an offering. It's on the wrong altar. But if you take away the sea, you can't wash yourself. Right? Take away the basins, you can't wash yourself anymore. Okay. Chapter 17, we get a new king of Assyria. And this is, uh, this is it. This is the end of the road for Israel. Okay. It comes all of a sudden and sort of with a whisper. Against Hoshea, the king of Israel, verse 3, came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. And Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt. And offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria. And for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hoshea the king of Assyria captured Samaria. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah. And on the the Heber, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. So, poof, Israel's gone. They're out of the land, right? They've been exiled to Assyria. And then, interestingly, I mean, this is—it's this, it's too long to read now. Um, verses seven through verses seven through twenty-three of this chapter, of chapter seventeen, in in many ways, sort of recaps what happened to the people of Israel. And if you were, and if you were to guess, so wh- when you read this, if you were to guess, what is what is the chief sin? What is the thing? that God holds them most accountable for? Idolatry, Idolatry right? And this is, um, so, it's, so it's, not, it's not abandoning ceremony. It's not, it's not uncleanness. It's not even the fact that they don't keep the Passover, which we find out later they haven't been keeping the Passover. It's that they seek other gods. So Elisha said when the king of Israel was um, inquiring of another god, he said, is there no god in Israel? That you, that you seek after this other God, that you inquire of him, right? That's the, the main thing. Um, what God wants is for his people to call on him, to invoke his name, to ask him for help, right? And they do precisely the opposite. Now, what I think is so interesting about reading First and Second Kings and so applicable to us, although it requires some translation, right, is that we look at the idolatry of Israel and it's so crude, right? They set up altars they sacrifice their children. They, um, you know, they uh, Im- they import um, altars from other other temples. They make themselves subject to foreign nations that follow other gods. Now, none of these things do we see happening around us, right? It, it, amongst us. Nonetheless, the the idolatry of the people of Israel is an image of the of the very same idolatry that we all that we all fall victim to, right? So we're not, none of us, none of us is, is free from the temptation to idolatry. It's not always as crude or crass. Sometimes it is, but it's not always as crude or crass as what we see in First and Second Kings. But the, but the challenge, as you're reading it, as you're reading the story, is not to think of it as the story of somebody, of, you know, of some, some group that's apart from you, some group that you don't belong to. You are, you are the children of Abraham by faith, Right? And so this story is your story, right? And it's uncomfortable, <laughs> to, to say the least. It's uncomfortable to, to ask of yourselves how you know how am I, how where do I fit into this story, right? Um, but that but that's really the, the invitation that's at hand here. This is our story, okay? Now, what's so important to, and to never to forget is that the story, um, w- which which is stronger, the promise of life or the promise of death, right? Which is stronger? The promise of life. Um, the story is about God's compassion and his, and his steadfast love. And that, it's, that is, just as every word spoken two ways, that is the invitation for us here. We're going to see, we can do this, in Hezekiah. Uh, when we get to Hezekiah, we're going to see how that looks. Okay? Um, and so cling to that. Cling to that when you read this story. Don't, don't let it be a grim tale um, a, a, that leads you to despair. You find yourself in the story and then you hear the promises of God, right? That's, that's, that's the whole point. So, let's turn a couple of pages here. Let's go to page 8. Um, we could talk about this for quite a bit, but we're going we're gonna to skim over it. Um, verses 24 through 41 of chapter 17 give you a really interesting, interesting background on the nation of Samaria. Do you remember, can you think of times in the New Testament that we hear about Samaria? Any, anything to come to mind? The Good Samaritan. Okay, so what's so what's so strange about that story? Why why does it matter that he's a Samaritan? They were looked down upon. Okay, any other stories that you can think of? The woman at the well, the woman at the well right, whom Jesus comes to and um, and uh, tells her, her her whole story, and he, he she says, uh, "You worship over there, we worship over here." And he says, "There will come a day when when we'll all worship we'll all worship in the same place, right?" Um. Well, what else? Remember anything else? Yeah. Well, right um, um, Right, right. And and so and that's exactly right. That's so if you read this story, it's fascinating. Um the, the long and short of it is the Assyrians bring in people to take the place of the Israelites who are in, a Samaria, in Samaria, and a bunch of lions come out and kill them. And they say, well, we must be doing something wrong. So they bring a priest from Israel who tells them what the worship life of Israel looks like, but they don't, they don't follow that solely. They, they mix. It's a syncretism, right? And that's the reason why, um, why, the, why the Jews look down on the people of Samaria because their, their, religi- their religion is this mixed religion, uh, we hear about it uh, also in in Luke uh, where Luke we hear about the Good Samaritan, but we also hear about it I mean just just as an example of how how angry <laughs> the Jews were about the people of Samaria um jesus uh I can't remember what the occasion is, but he's somehow sort of given given the cold shoulder and his disciples, the sons of thunder uh they they say Lord, would you like us to call down fire from heaven to consume them, those people of Samaria whom we don't like very much, right? So, they, I mean, it was, it, it's really a bad relationship. But now think about, think about what it means um, that Jesus ministers to them, right? And, uh, and, and this, the, the story that we hear here of how uh, Samaria is resettled by Assyrians um, who, who, who have a glimmer, a glimpse of, of the Jewish religion, of the Jewish faith, of the, of the worship of Yahweh, um, we see we see how that how that starts chapter 17 very interesting read chapter 17 when you get home that one especially okay now turn the page page 9 we're getting we're getting close hezekiah so here we are over here at the at the at the end of the book israel's gone on your chart that you have on page 2 You can see where, on the right column, you see where it says Samaria falls. And that's where the kings of Israel just drop off the face of the earth, right? But on the left side, you have Judah continuing. So Hezekiah is a really good king. And he's good in this way. Verse 5, He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, page 9, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord, keeps the first commandment, He did not depart from following him, but he kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He didn't serve the king of Assyria. He struck down the Philistines. He protected the people of Israel. Go ahead and turn the page now. Page 10. Now, um, and here's an example of how he he did this. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, so the third king of Assyria that we hear about. We heard about Tiglath-Pileser, Shalmaneser. And now Sennacherib. Okay, so we're we're moving along in the timeline. He comes against uh, the the cities of Judah, and he sends this uh, this court official, the Rabshakeh, and he comes out and stands stands outside the wall and, and um, starts spouting this propaganda, saying, um, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't trust in that God. In fact, you probably made you made that God angry, that God that you trust in, because. Your king, Hezekiah, he tore down all those high places where you worshipped him. You, should probably, you shouldn't trust in him at all. He's not going to save you, right? Well, previous to this, all of the bad kings would have thrown up their hands and said, Okay, uh, I'm done. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll do whatever you say. We'll we'll follow your gods. We'll, we'll, you can take us and, and, it, and it's yours. Um, Hezekiah doesn't do that. Isaiah comes along and prophesies to um, to Hezekiah and tells him that Hezekiah is going to prevail over the Assyrians, okay? Turn to page 12. So Hezekiah has this promise from Isaiah, this prophecy from God. Um, And the the Assyrians are still sort of imposing on the people of of Judah. They're imposing on the city. And when Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went to the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth. So their, their attitude is one of humility, right? Penitence. Sackcloth and ashes. To the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, had sent. To mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So, King Hezekiah says to Isaiah, pray for us. Okay? He's asking the prophet to pray for them. And that is, that is the, the action of a faithful king. When the servants of Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So the king of Assyria goes off to fight another battle because he heard this rumor. And then Hezekiah offers another prayer uh, because the, the, the Assyrians are still sort of imposing on them. And he prays at the bottom of the page there, O Lord, the God of Israel, turn the page, page 13, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, what a confession. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your ears, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand. Uh, very, Very seldom... In first and second kings, do we hear anybody say, "Save us, O oh God"? Do you remember one other time we talked about was the the, uh, the king of Moab had sent three groups of armies to Elisha, who was sitting on the mountain. The first two got consumed by fire, and the third one said, "Please let our lives be precious in your sight." Right? Seldom do we hear this kind of this kind of plea. Save us uh, from. Save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know you, that you, O Lord, are God alone. Okay? And then one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, verse 35. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, Adrammelech, and Sharazer, his sons, Struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And his son re- reigned in his place. Okay? So the, the petition of Hezekiah was answered in, in an astounding fashion, right? The, the, the picture is just <laughs> priceless, right? You go to bed one night thinking that you've got 185,000 troops out there. And you wake up in the morning and they're all dead. That's a really good way to wake up. That's a great day, right? Um, and and, that's, the, and that's, the, that's the promise that's given to, to Hezekiah. Any questions? Okay. One more story about Hezekiah that you need to know. And this is, again, Hezekiah is here at the end of 1 and 2 Kings set up in contrast to all of the other kings that have gone before him. He's like nobody except for David in terms of his humility and and the way he petitions God um, for salvation. So, the story goes like this. Chapter 20, uh, Isaiah comes and says, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order for you shall die. You shall not recover. Now, here's a word. Just like many words that we've, sp- we've heard before, a word of death, a promise of death, you shall die, right? And there are two ways that you can hear that word. You can hear it in despair, or you can hear it as, a, as an opportunity for, for faith and trust. What does Hezekiah do? Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out from the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Turn back and say to Hezekiah, The leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Okay? So Hezekiah's prayer Hezekiah's faithful prayer is answered. Everybody see see the contrast there? It's a pretty pretty stark contrast. Any questions? Okay. So I didn't print out out the last five chapters because frankly I didn't think we'd get this far. But um, here's what happens. I wrote down a few notes. Um, We know know that the end is coming. um, But there's this reprieve with Hezekiah. The people of Judah are... Are given a good king, and they and they and they live they live well under that king, um, and that king is faithful and trusts in God. Um, he has a terrible son, Manasseh, who um, does does terrible things. And against Manasseh is pronounced this word of judgment: um, the, the kingdom is going to be taken from you. Um, Manasseh has a son, Amon. I think that's how it goes, right? And then Amon has a son, Josiah, and Josiah is the last the last great hope for Israel. And uh, if you get a chance to read this, it's 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 interesting and very informative. So Josiah is working on restoring the temple, and they find, as they're restoring the temple, the book of the law, and Josiah reads it, or the, 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 the priest reads it and says, hey, there's all these things that we're supposed to be doing, like keeping the Passover, and we haven't been doing them. Um, and Josiah, who is a reformer, right, he, he's a, he uh, is a reformer who was prophesied in First, in first Kings. Uh, way back in First Kings, the pro- prophecy was given to Jeroboam. Uh, so there was Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Who took Jeroboam took Israel. Rehoboam took Judah. The prophecy was given to Jeroboam that said, "There's going to be a guy named Josiah, and, and he's going he's to set things in order." And that's what he does. He restores the worship life of Israel. He restores he restores the temple. Okay. Um, and, uh, and things look pretty good. But then um, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, comes along, and, um, and, and after a few bad kings, right, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah, um, Nebuchadnezzar takes the people of Judah into exile, okay? And this is, this is really w- nearly one of the final strokes in the death of the Davidic kingdom. So we don't see the resurrection we don 't see the resurrection um, yet in first and second kings, but think about again once again if I could give you, if I could give you one sort of paradigm to, to look at first and second kings as the death and resurrection of the Davidic kingdom, think about these three things: wisdom the temple and the and the law. so the temple is destroyed they 're following the law, but that 's not enough right they're keeping they 're keeping the law as well as they can, but that 's not enough their trust in the law their trust in the temple. Jeremiah prophesies and says. You foolish people, you, you come to the temple and you say the temple, the temple, the temple, and then you go home and you pretend like you, the temple didn't exist, right? You can't trust in the temple. Um, it has to be destroyed. It's an idol which has to be destroyed. The same, same goes for the law. The Pharisees hold the, hold the law as an idol, right? They say, we're going to do these things and we're going to do them better than anybody else, and that's our ticket to heaven. It's an idol that has to be destroyed, and it's destroyed, it's killed a, in the person of Jesus. So, Finally, in chapter twenty-five, chapter twenty-four, Jerusalem is captured, and chapter twenty-five, the people of Judah are carried away into exile. And then, and then that's it. That's it. <laughs> then there's then there's all then there's all of the prophets who sort of give us a glimpse at what's going on, and the prophets are very concerned um, not only with the people of Israel but also with all the nations that are oppressing Israel. Um, and then, and then they're, then we're just waiting. We're just waiting for the the time to come, right? Um, the time to be fulfilled, okay? Got any questions? You did a good job. Way to go, guys.